For Arizona Public Media, I'm Emma Gibson, and for Mark McLemore, welcome to Arizona Spotlight. Coming up next, I'll talk with Tony Perkins, Arizona Public Media's science reporter, about an upcoming conference that examines the science behind cannabis. We'll get into the weeds about why it's a little surprising the symposium is being held at the University of Arizona in the first place. Tag along at a training that helps people who work in the justice system understand what it's like for people when they get out of prison. We'll learn about the challenges that accompany re-entering society and the power of empathy. Have you ever said someone's name only to later find out you've been pronouncing it wrong? I'll talk with a linguistics expert about how to say tohono o'odam. Or is it tohono o'odam? And Mark McLemore speaks to the producer of a documentary called Voices of Vale that digs into the community's history. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Backers of medical marijuana say next week's symposium on cannabis research at the University of Arizona provides a big step towards informing the public about a controversial subject. I sat down with Tony Perkins, Arizona Public Media's science reporter, to find out what's significant about the upcoming conference. It is called the Inaugural Interdisciplinary Cannabis Symposium. Now it's being held on September the 25th. It's going to be carrying more significance, though, than just a group of experts talking about medical marijuana. And that's partially because of the state's history of dealing with the issue. This is the first conference of its kind to be held in Arizona. And so what is the U of A's history with researching cannabis? Well, you got to go back to 2014 and a major event that happened then. Now, there was research being done on cannabis at the university, but uh, former U of A professor Sue Sisley, as we reported back then, she was doing research on the subject of medical cannabis. She wanted to do clinical trials to see how medical marijuana could help with military veterans trying to deal with PTSD. Well, she lost her job because some state lawmakers were not too comfortable with their advocacy for medical marijuana. Wait, wait, wait. So she lost her job because she was doing research on medical marijuana. Right. It was a very touchy subject, especially with certain state lawmakers who uh, didn't know if this was an appropriate thing for a state-funded research institution to do. Now, of course, here in Arizona, you can get a you can get a doctor's recommendation for medical marijuana. You can apply for a state-issued card that gives you safe access to medical cannabis. So it is a a significant subject for research, and it's something that can really help people. And that is what led to this huge debate five years ago about uh, Professor Sisley. She lost her job, and she frankly, was unable to find uh, a new location within the state to do research. So what were some of the other repercussions? Well, that uh, situation that happened, it cast a kind of a chilling effect on the research in, in general. You know, what uh, the question arises about political influence on uh, research at institutions like the University of Arizona and the other two major universities in the state. Uh, Professor Sisley had uh, earned her medical degree at the U of A, but the university was able to take away her job, and then she had more trouble finding another place to continue her research. And those who back medical marijuana 
cite this example as another case in Arizona politics getting in the way of science and research into information that can help people. At least it did five years ago in Arizona. And that's one of the things that's interesting about this symposium that's coming up. What has changed in the last five years that's been able to progress to the point that you can bring a symposium and a conference like this to the University of Arizona? And so what are they actually going to be talking about at this symposium? The presenters are going to talk about how marijuana works with biology and physiology. You know, how it works as a treatment regimen for certain physical and mental health issues. I talked with Dr. Raphael Gruner, who's going to be one of the U of A presenters at this conference. And I asked him, first of all, how hard it was to get this symposium located in Tucson. I think people eventually here get to believe that if the University of Arizona wants to be a significant partner in all of this, uh, something has to get started. And they saw the uh, proposal for a symposium, in other words, talking about it, as a very good beginning. Getting people to talk about medical cannabis is seen by Dr. Gruner and, and others at the conference as being a major, major step. Do you know how this conference will affect future cannabis research at the U of A? Well, Dr. Gruner says it could be possible that... Uh, Research will be ramped up, and you could look at marijuana as just another plant that can be utilized as medicine. Eighty-five percent of all medications that we get prescribed by our physicians and we buy in certified pharmacies, 85 percent originated in plants. So cannabis is just going to be one of them. It's an interesting thing to consider. Again, this is coming from experts in medicine. They don't want to be bogged down by the political and social implications and ramifications of promoting medical cannabis or dismissing its use or effectiveness. But the key thing is they're not shying away from this issue. And that's one of the things that's significant about uh, bringing this symposium to uh, the University of Arizona. Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you. Tony Perkins is AZPM's science reporter. The inaugural Interdisciplinary Cannabis Symposium will be held September 25th at the Duval Auditorium on the University of Arizona campus. A group called Second Chance Tucson and the City of Tucson are focused on reducing recidivism. Together they have hosted events aimed to help people re-enter society after a prison sentence, including a job fair this week at the Tucson Convention Center. In addition to getting a job, there are so many items on a person's to-do list when they leave prison. The Adult Probation Services Division of the Arizona Supreme Court hosts trainings to show state, county, local, and tribal agencies what it's like to navigate life after prison. At one re-entry simulation event in Tucson, the participants were employees of the courts, probation, or parole offices. One of them was Bethany Maldonado who I followed through the simulation. She works in juvenile court probation, but this afternoon, she's taking on a new role. Today, I'm Neil. I served four years in federal prison for internet fraud. She and about 60 other participants get a new identity today, along with a criminal background and a level of education. The participants will work in four 10-minute periods, which each represent a week, They'll travel around the conference room to buy their state IDs and food while still meeting their probation officers and taking drug tests. 
If they complete a task or pass a test, they'll get a check mark. If they don't pass, they get an X. Too many X's and they'll risk going back to prison. In her first week, Maldonado says she needs to buy groceries and take a drug test. But she needs to get a new ID first. So I'm in line at Motor Vehicle to get my driver's license or my state ID. And I went to Donate Plasma this morning. They handed me my check and I forgot to ask for my ID when I realized I didn't have it. I went back in line and she denied me my ID and told me I had to go to Motor Vehicle and get a new ID. So I'm in this long line and um, I was told that once I get to the front of the line, I have to fill out a form and then get back in line. I'm a little frustrated. Uh, it's turning out to be kind of a bad day today. As we stood in line and week one came to a close, she realized just how much that one mistake was impacting her week. She couldn't cash the check, which she needed to pay for food. And she had to finish her tasks to keep from violating her probation. Well, I will see you in week okay. two. When they came back together, Shanda Breed from the Arizona Supreme Court asked them how it went. Many were annoyed and amazed they had only been able to accomplish one task that week. Okay, by a show of hands, who actually paid for food? Oh, wow. Okay, you guys need to eat every single week, okay? By a show of hands, did anyone pay their rent? That needed to pay their rent. Anyone pay their rent? No, nobody paid their rent. Okay, so who should have paid their rent on the first week? Let me see your hands. Whoa. Okay, stand up, please, and come to the front. You're now in the homeless shelter. <laughs> she emphasized that the trainees needed to meet with their probation officers, go to work, and if their characters have them, find their children or parents that they now have to travel with. Again, don't give up. Okay, what do we tell our folks that we have on probation? Don't give up. Try again. Ask around. You have help out there. All right, ready for the second week? Go. <laughs> Maldonado and half the group bolt from their seats to get in line for the DMV and carry on with their week two tasks. Yes, hi, I need to get a state ID. Okay, I'll need to see your birth certificate and your uh, social security card. And then I'll need $15 and a bus pass. Okay, problem is, I don't have $15. I have everything else. Well, you'll have to go find $15 before you can do Can I borrow $15? Thankfully, Maldonado's friend in line behind her lends her the money. And she heads to the bank to cash her plasma check to pay her friend. I haven't accomplished anything else today. I still have to go to treatment, go to probation, pay for food, and get a drug test today. So hopefully I can get all this done. But it's very frustrating. I'm feeling like this is really happening to me. And I kind of feel like a second-class citizen right now, that people are just kind of pushing me away and not giving me a second chance. The second week ends, and Maldonado still hasn't eaten but she saves enough money to pay her debts and get five bus passes. In week three, Maldonado pawns her laptop, buys some food, and tries to give plasma, but can't because her character got a new piercing. She had to get back in line to try again. Shanda Breed from the Arizona Supreme Court began the last week of simulated events by reminding the participants that if they aren't completing their tasks, 
their probation officer can send them back to jail. This is your last week. I know you just feel like giving up. I know this is redundant. You just want to go back to prison, right? You don't really want to pay food for yourself and all of you. I see the bones coming out. <laughs> so pay for food. Okay? I know you'd much rather pay for your family, but you want to stay out of jail, okay? And this week in particular, if we start seeing exes, everybody, refer them to the court, please. In the last week, Maldonado deposits some checks, but has to go to substance abuse treatment, get a drug test, pay for restitution and food, and visit her probation officer and the career center. She completes about half of these. Breed says these events can get messy with the trainees who work in the criminal justice system, stealing money from the fake businesses, lying to their POs, or pushing other participants out of the way so they can complete their tasks. You know, you try and start playing this game, but that's on us too. We've created a lot of barriers. We've created all these terms and conditions of probation. So what we're trying to train our officers is to say, hey, especially if they're coming out of POC, you have the discretion to work with this person. Get them stabilized. That's number one. Housing, job. They cannot do any of these other terms and conditions unless they're in a good place. And it's okay if they're maybe lying to you about certain things. They're gonna put their best foot forward when they see you. She says the event is supposed to make people feel anxious and force them to make the hard decisions offenders experience in real life. Maldonado says it definitely worked on her. I was sweating, I was nervous. At times I wanted to give up and I felt like maybe just going to prison was, you know, go back. That seemed easier. I think everybody should try out this class. Breed says the Adult Probation Services Division of the Arizona Supreme Court and the Arizona branch of the U.S. Attorney's Office has put on over 30 reentry simulations over the last two years. If you're interested in participating, contact information is on our website. It's the second largest Native American reservation in Arizona, about the size of the state of Connecticut, and yet many people still don't know how to say the name of the tribe that's inhabited the Tucson area for thousands of years. I'm talking about the Te'ono O'odham Nation. Here's a hint, I just said it the way one of my instructors taught me. University of Arizona linguistics professor Ophelia Cepeda helped me practice. Te'ono O'odham. Can you break that down? Like sort of uh, syllables, I guess. To, ho, no. To, ho, no. To, ho, no. O, o, tam. O, o, tam. O, o, tam. And say that at regular speed one more time. To, ho, no. O, o, tam. If I say it, it's more like to, See, tohono o o dum. That the yours sounds different. Tohono o o dum. Tohono o o dum. Tohono o o dum. Okay. So 
Sorry, I was watching your mouth. <laughs> I'm ridiculously no, close. No, no. Um, are there any names that people off the reservation continually mis- mispronounce? Hmm. Um, or, or do you have a pet peeve when people mispronounce a name yeah. continually? I'm more accommodating. I'm not too quick to judge when somebody is trying to say a name. Because most of the places nearby have English counterparts, so people will, you know, use the the English name. For instance, the place named Tucson is a Northern word, and and some people will want to say it more, you know, the way you would say it in autumn instead of saying it saying Tucson. So the autumn place name for Tucson is Chukron. Chukshon. A lot of places in this area, they'll have that word chuk, which is um, black or dark coloring. Uh, like there's a mountain here, chukadok. And local people want to pronounce it in the way all of them do. Because they don't call it, well, they call it Black Mountain, but they prefer to call it chukadok. But yeah, I can't think of other place names that are in the area that get mangled a lot. Other than, I mean, the, the what the people call themselves. One thing, though, that I do always want to clarify about the name of the people, you don't have to say the full name. In fact, the word means people. I mean, if you're going to say somebody is from that tribe, you can just say, you know, he or she is or you can say he or she is but you can't say she or he is and a lot of people here on this campus do that they they choose the first part but that doesn't make sense because you're saying you know she or he is desert versus she or he is meaning she's of that group or she's a person is what you you know what you want to say so if I wanted to use some type of adjective, I would put the o'otam, o'otam, o'otam. If you're to see me muttering around <laughs> campus, that's what it's going to look like. But if I was going to maybe even just slang-wise, mm-hmm. just say, you know, so-and-so is o'otam. Mm-hmm. That works? That would, that would be fine, you know, unless it's something really more official or formal, where you need to designate that it is Tohono O'odham. In Arizona, there's two O'odham groups. There's us, Tohono O'odham, and then there's a group closer to Phoenix, and they're O'odham also, and they they are Akimar O'odham. So we're the desert people, and they're the river people. Um, So when you say O'odham, you're sort of including both of them, which is fine. But if you really want to distinguish, say, if you're talking about schools on the Tohono O'odham Nation, then you say Tohono O'odham. Once you establish that, then you can go to O'odham, you know, the O'odham schools here. One thing that I was thinking about a couple weeks ago was when mainstream society says common words incorrectly from your culture, how that impacts the culture at at large, like I heard NPR 
say tohono o odom. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? As I said, I I, I tend to be more accommodating because uh, you never know the person who's pronouncing it could be the first time that they're trying it, trying to pronounce it, which is you know good. But if they keep doing it that way and no one's corrected them, especially no one from in the organization, to me they should be at a point where they can correct each other or point it out that they're not saying it, you know, correctly. I mean, you can stop wars by understanding another culture and another language. And it starts with something basic, pronouncing words correctly that come from another language, from another culture. If you'd like to learn the Tohono O'odham language, Cepeda teaches classes at the University of Arizona. Can we build a future if we don't know where we've come from? That's the question asked in the oral history documentary, Voices of Vale. Mark McLemore talked to one of the film's producers and participants, J.J. Lamb, about the ways indigenous history, railroads, ranching, immigration, and modernization have shaped Vale, Arizona, sometimes known as the town between the tracks. Vale exists and exists where it is located because of the railroad. So as the railroad was being built uh, in the late 1870s across Arizona, uh, they were following the old wagon road when they got to this portion of laying the track. And it dips down through Sienega Creek. And about every 7 to 10 miles, the railroad needed to build a siding because there was only one track at that point in time, and east-west rail traffic had to be able to pass each other. And so originally, uh, Vail was called Vail's Siding. It was a little service point, and there were probably about 10 railroad workers stationed here. And it was mainly to facilitate rail traffic and to maintain that section of track. So a ranching community grew up around that railroad siding. And so in 1901, there was a railroad depot built. And at that point, then Vail got its own postal service and people could pick up their mail here in Vail. But this place, that last flat piece of land between the railroad tracks, uh, that was the geographic nexus that brought people together. What kind of a relationship did the Tono O'Autumn and the settlers have? You know, one of the things that we're really proud of and that we worked very hard to do is share the many voices of Vail that have called this place home. And uh, we partnered with the Tonotum Nation Cultural Center. And Bernard Sikeros and Joseph Joaquin, who is an elder, came along with the basket singers. And we asked them what Vail meant to them. And when I asked Carolyn Reyes, one of the basket singers, what Vail meant to her, um, she said, we were here first. That's what it means to me. The Vale area had so many things that were necessary to their way of life, resources that they used for basket making, uh, for making pottery, and sacred places that they would visit on their seasonal migratory route through the Tucson Basin. Understanding that, I think, is really critical. That's part of Vale's story. It's also the part of many, many small towns in Arizona and across the United States. 
Well, one of the primary questions that the film asks at the beginning is, how can we build a future if we don't know the people that shaped us? It's funny to hear one woman who relates when she was young that Vail was well known as a place with no gas, no water, and no lights. Uh, One of the folks that we interviewed was George Montan, and his family uh, arrived in Vail about 1905. And homesteaded and farmed at Rancho Del Lago. And it was actually George Montan's um, step-grandfather, Otto Schley, that built the Oldville store and post office. So we worked very hard to find people with connections to those um, really early stories. We wanted to capture a glimpse into what life was like. Life was very hard for people in the countryside, you know, outside the cities in Arizona. And and we wanted people living in Bale now to have an understanding of what that was like. And the story that the Montan family has to share based on the letters written by their matriarch Alma Tattersfield are really interesting. I mean, that provides a very, very personal story. And also the point is made that they succeeded by producing uh, vegetables, because at that point, there was no way to get fresh vegetables to a place like Vail. People really relied on each other, and they had to find those resources and use those resources that are really close at hand. And so they made a life from what was available, and they depended upon each other. Yeah, Alma's words, uh, whenever I read those, oh, wow. Yeah, life was hard. We're working with some students this year, and they've watched the movie. They're eighth graders at Oldville Middle School. And they've picked up on um, that people came here to escape the Mexican Revolution. Um, They connect to Rancho Del Lago because they live there. And so for those 12, 13, 14-year-olds to start to imagine the different layers of history and people's lives One of them said they like to imagine that where they're standing, um, some of these things that they saw in the movie might have happened. And one girl had moved here from Indiana last June, and there's lots of farms. And it helped her feel more connected to know that Rancho Del Lago had once been a huge farm because she was very familiar with farms. So, you know, when those stories um, can help us connect to some universal experience, human experience, then it helps us connect to place. There were over 300 people who helped make the film. And involving the community was extremely important. Uh, We felt like that was part of making the connections to community. Mark McLemore spoke with J.J. Lamb, president and CEO of the Vale Preservation Society. She's one of the many people in the documentary Voices of Vale. The Loft Cinema in Tucson will screen the film this Sunday, September 22nd at 1.30 p.m. There's a link for information at the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. Arizona Spotlight is a production of Arizona Public Media. This week's show was produced and hosted by me, Emma Gibson. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. And our music is by Calexico. Mark McLemore will be back next week.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.